always look forward to being able to uh, come up and preach in, in Pastor Malcolm's absence, and so I don't take this privilege lightly. Uh, and, and so if you, right, right off the bat, what I want to do is just open up in prayer. So would you all pray with me before we begin? Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the worship we've already had. God, I believe you're up to something big here in this church. And God, I pray right now that you would use me. God, hide me behind the cross, Lord, that you would help me say all those things that I have prepared for. God, you would help filter out the things I don't need to say. But God, that you would uh, just pour into me so I could be poured out this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, you can go ahead and be seated. And, and uh, while you're being seated, I encourage you to open your Bibles to the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel is where we're going to be hanging out this morning. Uh, the first chapter of Daniel. I don't know if you've realized this, but the Christians, Christians in general, have lost the home field advantage. Now, for my sports enthusiasts, you know what it means to have a home field advantage. It's always good to play a game at your home court, at your home field, because you have the fans behind you, because everything's in your favor. But, but, but right now, if you're a serious Christian, someone who believes the Bible and tries to live by the teachings of Scripture, you have lost the home field advantage. Now, there was a time, there was a time if you were a serious Christian, you had the home field advantage. Culture was on your side. The media was supportive. Educational systems were in favor of you. And even if people didn't agree with you, they still respected you enough to let your voice be heard. But as you become more and more serious in the culture that we're living in currently, in the current, in the, in the current temperature of our culture, if you're trying to be a Christian, someone who lives by the Scriptures you're going to find yourself no longer having the home field advantage because your definition of marriage is different. Your definition of male and female realities is different. Your definition of of family and modesty and dignity is different than the cultures. Your definition of when life begins is different than the cultures. And so it's hard to have home field advantage when we're living in a culture that no longer supports Christian values and worldviews. And what has happened in recent years is there's been a movement within the Christian churches, within churches all over America, there's been a movement called progressive Christianity. The idea that you can be a Christian yet still side with culture. You want to be celebrated with culture, applauded by culture, accepted by culture, and then come to church on Sunday with your Bible under your hand thinking you're still part of the Christian team. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. And if we're living for God, we're going to be in the visiting team. Now, this is, very, this is fleshed out for us in the book of Daniel. We see, we see a, a, a group of people that have been transplanted from their land, a godly land, into a pagan land. Matter of fact, in, in 605 B.C., the land of Judah was taken captive by the Babylonians. This was God's judgment on Judah. Because Judah was being disobedient and and dabbling in pagan worship. And God was warning them. He warned them way in advance, saying this was going to happen. But they still continued to live the way they wanted to live. And so if you turn to the book of Daniel, chapter 1, it says in verse 1, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. And the king spake unto Ashpenaz, 
the master of the eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed and the princes, children in whom was no blemish, but well-favored and skillful in all wisdom and cunning and knowledge and understanding science, and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them three years, and at the end thereof they might stand before the king." So what happened? The people of Judah were rebellious and worshiping other gods. And God basically took his hands off of them and says, hey, if you don't want me, I'll let you hang out with them for a little while. And so they become captive in a foreign land. Let me ask you a question. And I need participation. Out there at Fairview, I need participation. I want to ask you a question. If, if this, this is you, I want you to raise your hand. We may not have, have 100% participation. That's fine. Because this is a serious question. But how many of you want to say, you would, you would agree, I, I want to be used by God? How many would raise your hand and say, I want to be used by God? Okay, out there at Fairview, raise your hand. Here's a follow-up question. Don't raise your hand. I want you to think about this one. How many of you want to be used by God no matter what it may cost you? Right? It's a different type of question, isn't it? It has a little bit different weight to it. I want to be used by God. It may cost you something. Well, <laughs> I don't know. See, we understand as Christians, as Christ followers, it's going to cost you something to be a committed Christ follower, isn't it? In Luke chapter 9, verse 23, see, Jesus did something radical. Every time a big crowd would, would form, Jesus would say something crazy to the big crowd and everybody would leave. You know, and so in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, he has this big crowd of people following him. He turns and looks at him and says, if you want to come after me, you must deny yourself. Take up your cross daily and follow me. The cross was an instrument of torture and death. He says, following me is going to be sacrificial. Following me is going to cost you something. And I don't know if you understand this, but following Jesus may cost you some things. Trying to be a Christ follower in today's culture might cost you some things. It may have cost you some friends. As you try to live for the Lord and try to do those things which are honoring to Him, you have a group of friends that are not there yet, and so you might have to part ways with some friends. I've had people lose their job because they're taking a Christian stance in their job. I've seen people lose financially because of their commitment to follow Christ, because they feel so burdened about a need that they see, they could have easily went and sold something and made a profit on it, but them trying to be the hands of Jesus instead took that thing they could have sold and gave it away freely to somebody who needed it. Following Jesus might cost you something. In today's culture, we see it's going to be hard to be a Christ follower. And today's message is called being different when it's difficult. It's hard. Being different in today's culture, isn't it? If we look at the people of, of Judah, they were warned. In Isaiah chapter 39, verse 5 through 7, this is what it says. Isaiah 39, 5 through 7, it says, Then said Isaiah to Hezekiah, Hear the word of, word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days come that is all in thine house, and that which thy fathers have laid up in store until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left. This was written a century before it happened, by the way. They were told way in advance, Babylon's coming. If you don't change your ways, judgment is coming. And so Isaiah is warning them. It says, Nothing shall be left, saith the Lord. And of thy sons that shall issue from thee, which thou shalt beget, shall they take away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So here's Daniel and his three friends in Daniel chapter 1. And they are taken into Babylon. And the king says, Bring the young 
bring the handsome, bring the skilled and the intelligent and the high ranking to me because I want to teach them some things. He was taking the young and impressionable of the culture and then indoctrinating them with the ways of the Babylonians. I don't know if you realize this, folks, but we're living in Babylon. And we're living in a culture that wants to take your children and indoctrinate them in the ways of pagan ways and pagan culture. I don't know if you realize this, but they're trying to have drag queens come in and read books to your elementary students. They're having drag queen pageants at elementary school. You have teachers who are fighting mad because they can't teach gay sex to kindergartners. They're trying to get your kids. You you have people that are angry today because they can't have... Listen, grandma, grandpa, mom and dad, they are after your kids. Disney is shoving every bit of woke garbage they can into every television show and movie they produce. They're after your kids. Social media influencers with millions of followers are posting all this propaganda and agenda and spitting lies, and your teenagers are eating it up. This world is after your children. They're after my children, and, 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 and we have to put a foot down somewhere, don't we? We are living in Babylon. And so when I read First Daniel chapter 1, what I see are four different ways the Babylonians came and tried to undo the godly heritage of those children of Israel. And so right now I'm going to kind of unpack that for us. The first thing we see that they did was change their identity, their identification. They changed their identity. See, the Hebrews, their names meant something. A lot of times they were named after what their, their, it's kind of like a foreshadowing of what that person would be, a foreshadowing of that person's character. And so they would be named uh, uh, kind of like saying, this is who this person's going to be. Daniel, his name ends with the letters E-L, which in Hebrew, the short for Elohim. Elohim is the name of God. Daniel's name is God is my judge. So when little Daniel was born, his parents looked at him and says, we'll call him Daniel. And every time he hears his name, he will be reminded that God is his judge. Every time his name is called, he would be aware that God is present and God is with him and God is his judge. His name had significance. His name had importance. Then you see Michelle. Michelle is E-L as well. Ends with E-L. The name of God. Elohim. What does his name mean? It says, who is what God is? In other words, that when parents looked at him and says, there is no God like our God. And every time he would hear his name, he would be reminded, there's no one like our God. And then you have Hananiah. I-A-H is short in the Hebrew for Yahweh. And his name was Yahweh has been gracious. And you have uh, Azariah. His name was Yahweh has helped. And so these four young boys had godly parents that were giving them a godly identity that were giving them a divine identity, helping them understand that children, you have been born into a godly heritage and everywhere you go, I want you to be reminded that God is looking after you and God is with you and God is your provider and God is your creator. And then they get to Babylon and the very first thing the Babylonians do is strip away their name. Listen, parents, can I just charge you for a second? Can I just talk to you for a second? You have a responsibility to put into your children a divine identity. 
to help them understand who they are in God. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying out there? Fair, you need to help your children understand the importance of who God is in their life. I, I shared not long ago, last time I preached, I shared one of the hardest things, the hardest days of my life was when I had to sit in that living room on that Saturday morning and look at my little girl, my little boy, and tell him mama had cancer. The hardest day of my life. And we cried. I'm not going to say we, you know, suck it up, buttercup. No, we cried. But then every time I would share a little bit of good news, my boy would look at me and says, Dad, God's working. Every time I'd come home and say, Mama ate all her food today, he would say, Hey, Dad, God's working. I said, Yeah, he is. Mom had a good report today. God's working. I didn't tell him to say that, but we have been so instilling in them the value of God in every situation that at the moment that the worst news could have happened, he still saw God working. Parents, you have a responsibility to instill into your children that they have value and worth in God. And what is happening in today's culture is they're stripping away identities. Something so common and basic such as gender identity. They're stripping it away. They have states now that offer you the option to put an X on a birth certificate as non-binary because who knows if they want to be male or female. You have a teacher's union, the, North, the National Education Association, that proposed a resolution to change the word mother to birthing parent. A teacher's union. You have a Supreme Court justice who couldn't even give a definition of the word woman. And she's a woman. It's idiotic. The stripping away values and identities. And, 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 and it's, culture is so muddying what is happening that you can't even go to some schools and say sir or ma'am because you might trigger somebody with the wrong pronoun and they have to go sit in a corner and cry for 30 minutes. We're living in a culture that identity is starting to mean nothing. We're in Babylon, folks. The second thing I see that they did was confuse their knowledge. Indoctrination. Confuse their knowledge. They sent these Hebrew children to Babylonian school. Look in verse 4. It says, Children in whom was no blemish, but well-favored and skillful in all wisdom and cunning and knowledge and understanding science, and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace, whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. The idea was this, they no longer wanted those Hebrew children to to think like Israelites. They wanted them to think like Babylonians. They're living in a different culture, in a different language, in a different pagan world. And so they're going to to de-Israelize them in effort to Babylonize them. I know that's not a word. It's fine. But they're trying to take away everything they've been taught and teach them something different. That's happening today. It's happening today. You and me and our children and your grandchildren are being taught to forget their Christian foundation. Every big institution is a godless institution. Media is a godless institution. Education is a godless institution. And you and me are having to watch things and hear things our mamas didn't have to watch and see. And it's everywhere. And every time you watch commercials, it's on commercials. They are brainwashing us. They're brainwashing your children. They're indoctrinating them at a younger age, and they're indoctrinating you too. And you might be thinking, no, I'm good. I ain't giving in to that kind of stuff. Really? Let me ask you a question. How unoffended are you at things now 
compared to how offended you were the first time you saw it? How unoffended are you at things today that you used to be really offended about before? You have become so exposed to things, it now doesn't even matter. It just rolls off your back. And another way to understand how deep this is going is how, bad your, how, how easily your kids are picking it up. And they're seeing it. Our education system, thankfully in Coleman, we are kind of, we still got a little bit of a, of a barrier. We got some godly principals and teachers kind of holding the line. But listen, if you go outside of Coleman, you'll see it everywhere. Our, our education system is against our children, a godly heritage. They're, against, they're a godless institution. I remember when I was in community college, community college, we had a professor, I'm not going to say his name, but we had a professor that at the, he's taught Western Civ. He was very, very anti-God, anti-Christ, and he would have posters in his office making fun of Christians. Like he was very vocal about his stance against Christianity. And he would get up in the middle of class at the very first day of class and offer an opportunity. He says, if anyone wants to publicly renounce their faith in this classroom, I'll give you an A and you don't have to come back for the rest of the year. This was in a community college. They're trying to get your children And they're trying to get our children and they're after you. So you better, as often as you can, tell your children who they are, because if you don't, this world will. They were after the children, after the young ones, the family unit. Here's how it's working. The family unit, as we know it, is eroding. And it has been part of the playbook for a long time. If you want the culture, you have to get the family first. And so as the family unit has begun to erode, the culture has begun to move in, and it's moving in, not, even, not just into our families, but into our churches. Man, I had a conversation a while back with a young girl, not even 18 years old yet. She heard a message about how people shouldn't live together before marriage. And uh, she asked me, she says, why is that such a big deal? Why aren't we supposed to live together before marriage? I don't understand that. And so I tried the best I could to explain it to her. I said, hey, here, here's what's happening. I said, everywhere in Scripture, you never see anyone living together before marriage. And anytime there was anything that happened before marriage, anything that shouldn't happen that's happened before marriage, God dealt with it. Or there's judgment. I said, secondly, if you're trying to be in God's favor and God's blessings on your life, then you can't live in rebellion and sin and expect Him to have favor on your life. That's not how this works. I said, you want to honor God. And then I use this analogy because I'm, I'm a youth pastor and sometimes I'm kind of dumb. All right. And so I like to put things on a shelf where everybody can reach them. Let me ask you out there, a fair of you here in this room. How many of you have ever had pizza rolls? OK, you know what a pizza roll is, that little pocket of lava that you pop in your mouth and you go, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking about? OK. Now, let me <laughs> let me ask you a follow up question. How many of you have had a pizza roll out of a microwave? Now, how many of you had a pizza roll out of an oven? Which one tastes better? Oven. Which one takes longer? Oven. So I told this young girl, I'll use that analogy. I said, girl, sometimes things are better to wait for. I said, you don't have to go and kiss every frog you see. Just just try to find a prince. I said, some things are worth waiting for. And she understood it. But then she came back with this. I'm going somewhere. She came back with this. Her church attending parents, her church attending parents suggested to her, 
it would be better to live together before marriage to make sure it's going to work out first. And my heart broke. Because here's the deal, parents. As good as Pastor Malcolm is, as much as I try to invest in your kids down in TSM, as much as Josh and Mindy try to invest in your young ones, we cannot out-teach what you teach at home. We cannot out in the culture, if it's moving into your home, then we can't out-teach that. And so shame on you parents if, if, if you are encouraging your children to go against the commands of God. And shame on you if you're turning a blind eye to your children's rebellious and sinful desires. And shame on you if you're not being intentional in their lives. And shame on you if you're trying to be their friend and not their parent. And shame on you if you're not begging God daily to protect their mind and to protect their heart from this culture that so wants to take them in and eat them up and spit them out. Listen, this is not popular, but I spanked my kids. And I ground my kids. I'll probably have child protective services arrest me in the foyer. I don't even care. But that's the reality. Why do I do that? Because I want them to understand that there's consequences for their actions. And they can't just do whatever they want to do and get away with it. Also, because I feel like it's my responsibility as a parent to instruct them on the ways on how to behave and have manners. So that when I send them to school, they're well-behaved students. I don't think it's the teacher's job to teach them how to behave. Can I get a witness from my teachers? Okay, thank you. And so I teach them right and wrong, and I spank them because I want to modify their behavior. I hate spanking them. The very first time I spanked my daughter, I cried. I cried hard. I hate it. But sometimes they need it. Acting stupid. So, but why do I do it? Because I'm trying to develop contributing members of society, not thumb-sucking, scared little 20-year-olds who can't keep a job. I'm trying to teach them the ways of God and teach them Christian values. I'm trying to instill. I will pick up my 12-year-old, my 12-year-old daughter who gave her a cell phone. I know some of y'all might have kids older than that and ain't got a cell phone. We leave her at home sometimes, so we want to make sure she has a way to call. But we restrict a lot of things. She ain't got Instagram. She ain't got Snapchat. She ain't got Facebook. She ain't got all that kind of stuff. I will pick up my daughter's cell phone anytime I dang well choose. And I will go through every text message and every picture. Because I want to make sure she is not sending nor receiving anything that I don't think is appropriate. And I remind her on a regular basis, this is my cell phone. I'm letting you use it. I will have it anytime I want. And you might be thinking, well, you're pretty strict. Yeah. Yeah, I am. You know why? Because this world is wanting your children. And somewhere along the line, we got to put a foot down and say, you can't have them. I'm telling you, I'm promising you, I cannot out-teach what you teach at home. So they're trying to indoctrinate. The number three, they're trying to change their location. What do they do? They pulled them away from Israel into Babylon. Israel was where their spiritual roots were. It was their little protective bubble. That's where mom and dad was. That's where their Christian values came from. This would be similar to somebody who grew up in a Christian home and is now going to a secular college. It's a life change. All of a sudden you see things and hear things and are part of things you never thought you could be a part of. And and, and now they've been removed from father and mother and they're training from their little protective bubble. And they're living in a foreign land, in a pagan land that doesn't celebrate and believe the same things they celebrate and believe. So let me ask you a follow-up question to that. Parents, have you prepared your children for the day they have to leave Israel to go live in Babylon? Because the day is coming when they have to move out. 
Are they prepared? Have you taught them? Have you helped them? Have you instructed them? Have you given them a godly identity? Have you helped them see God in every situation? Have you taught them enough of the scriptures to help them in those days when they don't have a Bible in front of them, but they can recall those moments that I remember when my mama said this. I remember when daddy said this. The fourth thing they did is they compromised their convictions. Look in verse 5. And the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them three years, and at the end thereof they might stand before the king. They offered Daniel and his friends the best food, the best wine. They offered him a job. You can go work for the government. That's what it means to stand before the king. We're going to give you a government job. We're going to pay you well. All you have to do is bow down to us. If you want to work here, you want, you, then you have to do what I say. I own you. Now, now, Daniel understood he was limited in his rights. He's a prisoner. He's limited in his rights. Matter of fact, in Jeremiah chapter 29, Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 through 7, Jeremiah gives some wisdom for those who are carried into captivity. This is what he says. He says, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, unto all that are carried away captives, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem unto Babylon. He says, Build you houses and dwell in them, and plant gardens and eat the fruit of them. Take you wives and beget sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons. And give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters, that you may be increased there and not diminished. And seek the peace of the city, whither I have caused you to be carried away captives, and pray unto the Lord for it. For in the peace thereof shall you have peace. In other words, this is what Jeremiah says. When you go to Babylon, just make sure you're being peaceful. Because as you're peaceful, it'll be peaceful unto you. So here's the thing. In today's culture, we have to go to secular schools. We have to go to secular jobs. We have to live in secular neighborhoods. That's it's, it's, it's the culture we're at. That's kind of how they went. We're like, okay, we'll, we'll work your job. We'll get your education. We'll spend your money. We'll do all that kind of stuff. But Daniel drew a line. He says, I ain't eating that meatloaf, though. I ain't eating that food. Why? Because there come a point where Daniel drew a line in the sand. Daniel knew. He had Old Testament knowledge about the, the right kind of food to eat, the way it had to be prepared, the way it had to be offered. And Daniel says, that's the wrong food offered to the wrong God, and I ain't eating it. He basically says, listen, I will work your job. I will go to your school. I will spend your money. But I ain't defiling my body and turning my back on my God. I'm drawing a line right there. And he drew that line. He says, I am not going to give up my God. Now, now here's, here comes down to the practicality. We've, we've learned how the Babylonians are trying to de-Israelize those children. Now, here's how we can stand firm. This is how we can be different when it's difficult. This is what Daniel did. Number one, submissive separation. Submissive separation. What did he do? He established non-negotiables. Non-negotiables. A non-negotiable is a conviction that you will not compromise on. I'm standing firm here. Daniel's like, I'll be peaceful. I'll go to the work. I'll go to the school. I'll do that. But I am not crossing this line. And I believe he, 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 he handled the situation with grace and conviction. He, he was serious when he handled it. But in Daniel chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, it says this, Now among these were the children of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, 
and to whom the prince of the eunuchs gave names. For unto Daniel he gave the name Belshazzar, and to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah of Abednego. But Daniel purposed in his what? He purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Here's three ways you can set your non-negotiables for your life. Because I believe everybody needs to have non-negotiables, things you do not waver on. The first way, obviously the most important thing that you extract your non-negotiables from, is Scripture. Daniel recalled in Exodus where it spoke about thou not eating the sacrifice given to other gods. This was serious. He says, your God is a jealous God. And Daniel understood that. He says, I'm not going to eat anything that my God does not approve of. He is a jealous God. This food was offered to fake gods. I'm not going to eat that because I worship the one true God. And so he derived his non-negotiable from Scripture. And so there are a lot of black and whites in Scripture, aren't there? There's, There's plenty of times where it says, if you do this, you will be blessed. I don't know about you, but I want to be blessed. And so if I want to be blessed, I will do those things. If you do this, you will be cursed. I don't like being cursed. So I'm going to stay away from those things. There are some non-negotiables that are plain in Scripture, but sometimes there's some things that aren't so plain. And so here's a second way you can get your non-negotiables is through your personal growth. Who are you trying to become? What are you wanting to be? I have been dieting since I was in eighth grade. <laughs> I ain't got there yet. Still working on it. But I know as I'm trying to diet and lose weight and exercise, if that's what I'm trying to do, then I know it's probably not best for me to dip a honey bun in Dr. Pepper and eat it. All right? I'm just saying that's probably not a wise thing to do. For who I want to become, the direction I'm trying to head, there are certain things that I make non-negotiables in my life. So if you ever wonder, should 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 I do this or should I not do this, ask yourself this question. Is this what is best for me and my spiritual walk right now? Or is this what's best for me in my personal walk right now? And if you say no, you leave it alone. It's a non-negotiable. Should I eat this triple patty? I'm trying to lose 15 pounds. Nah, I better not. It's non-negotiable. Right? We set non-negotiable by personal growth. You set third way is your testimony. So personal growth is who you're trying to become. Your testimony is who you want to be known as. Right? And so there's certain places and certain things I don't do because it may harm my testimony. Right? And I don't want to be a stumbling block to anybody. I lived in Panama City for a long time. In Panama City, they have a nightclub called Club La Vila. And Club La Vila is the biggest nightclub in America. It is closed down now. It's not active anymore. But back in the day, that place was hopping. Had phone parties. MTV would go out there. It was a place. I never been to Club La Vila. You know why? Because I didn't want anybody to see me there. I was afraid what would happen, the conversation afterwards. Well, I saw you at Club Avila. No, uh-uh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you still got a stamp right there on your arm. Oh, man, you know. I didn't want to have to make up a reason why I was there, so I stay away from Club Avila. There's certain, as a testimony, how do you want to be known as? What do you want your reputation to be known as? And so here's the thing. People will have different convictions than you, and that is okay because they don't have the same goals as you. And just because people don't have the same convictions as you doesn't mean you have to compromise on those convictions. Hold tight to your convictions. Hold tight to your non-negotiables. Listen, I'm telling you right now that God will honor you if you have a non-negotiable in your life. 
Because they see, secondly, what did, what did God do? God stepped in and gave Daniel some supernatural support. Look in verse 9. Verse 9. I, w- I want y'all to see this. Y'all there? Verse 9. Look at this first two words right there. What does that say? Yeah. Now God. Daniel says, I'm not going to defile myself. I'm not going to eat this food. And so God stepped in and he says, now God had brought Daniel into favor. How many of y'all want favor in your life? Everybody in here wants to be blessed and highly favored, right? Here's the problem. Not everybody wants to do the things required to be blessed and highly favored. We all want the benefits, but not not a lot of us want to make the sacrifice. And so Daniel was blessed and highly favored. I believe Daniel was civil when he went to that prince of the eunuchs and says, I will go to your school, I'll work for your government, I will live in your land, but I have a non-negotiable. I will draw a line in the sand. I will not defile my body with the king's meat. And here's the thing. If you don't have non-negotiables in your life, God isn't going to give you favor. Why isn't he going to give you favor? Because if he doesn't see conviction in your life, he can't trust you with favor. Why is he going to give you favor if you were drunk last night? Why is he going to give you favor if you have a secret porn addiction? Why is he going to give you favor if you're cheating on your husband? Why is he going to give you favor if you like to go and gossip about everything you hear? God ain't going going to honor that. And so you want to be honored by God? Put some non-negotiables in your life. Put some conviction in your life. Draw some lines in the sand and say, I'm not going to do that no more. And then Daniel says, well, let me have a 10-day challenge. Let me eat vegetables and drink water for 10 days. You come check up on me. If I'm doing better, then then we'll continue this way. And so that's exactly what they did. After 10 days, they went and checked up on Daniel. Daniel was healthier looking than all the other prisoners. Him and his three friends were healthier than all the other prisoners. And they brought him before Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar evaluated him and says, man, he's smarter. He's 10 times smarter than everybody else. Here's what I've come to understand is God will be the one who promotes you. God stepped in, gave Daniel favor, and God promoted him. And so even in a secular, godless culture, God can so favor you that even sinners will appreciate you. Because Nebuchadnezzar looked at them and says, I don't believe in their God. I don't like their faith, but them boys about to make me some money. So I'm going to elevate them. I'm going to promote them. But here's where we get it twisted. Sometimes we think if we have non-negotiables or we draw some lines in the sand, somehow that's going to make us lose. Somehow we're going to miss out. But I promise you, listen to me, I promise you, I promise you, you're not going to lose. Matter of fact, God is going to help you win. 100% of the time. And all through Daniel's life and his three friends' life, they had non-negotiables. They were holding hard to their non-negotiables, drawing lines in the sand. And then we get to chapter 3. And we see the government had put in a law. They said, okay, we don't want you to bow down and worship any other God but, but the golden image. And so at that time, in, in, in Daniel chapter 3, they set up that golden image, the trumpets blew, and those three boys, Hebrew boys, stood firm. We ain't bowing down. I got some non-negotiables. I ain't turning my back on God. And those three boys stood up when everybody else bowed down. And so in Daniel chapter 3, verse 16, it says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. See, he was about to throw them into a fire. He says, you ready, boys? He says, if it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, 
Be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. What happened? They drew a line in the sand and says, we are not turning our back on God. We're standing firm to our, we know it might cost us something, but we don't care. We have some non-negotiables in our life and we ain't turning our back on God. And so they threw him into that fire. We know what happens. There's three boys thrown in, but there's a fourth one dancing in the midst of them. And they come out and there's not a smell of smoke on their body. And all of a sudden, now the boss is repenting. He says, your God is great. Your God is big. Listen, you get to chapter 6 of the book of Daniel. We started in chapter 1. Daniel was a teenage boy. We get to Daniel chapter 6. Daniel is about 85 years old now. King Nebuchadnezzar is dead. The Babylonian kingdom has fallen. Now they're under rule by the Persians. And Daniel's doing fine. He's still living high on a cow. He's he's good. He's good. But the Persians don't like him either because he has so much favor and because so many people like him. So they're trying to trip up Daniel. And at first they try to go after him by making him look like he's not doing doing his job right. And so they go and watch him at his job and they find out, man, this dude's a man of integrity. This guy's got character. And so they couldn't find anything wrong with him at his job. But then they said, you know what? He is a very faithful, godly man. And so in Daniel chapter 6, verse 5, this is what's happened. It says, then, these, then said these men, we shall not find any occasion against this Daniel, except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. And so what happens? They put a law into place that he can't worship, he can't pray to his God anymore. He has to pray to the king of Persia. You know what Daniel did? <laughs> you done lost your mind. <laughs> uh-uh. I'm drawing a line in the sand right there, boy. Uh-uh. Telling me I can't pray to my God. You know what the author says? The author wants you to be sure that you see this in Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. It says, Now when Daniel knew the writing was signed, he heard the law was put into place. He went to his house, and his windows being what? Open. In his chamber towards Jerusalem, he kneeled upon his knee three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did before time. The author wants you to know his doors, his windows were open. Why? Because Daniel's like, hey, I've been praying with my windows open all these years. I ain't about to close them now. I'm not about to be some kind of closet Christian. And so he, he begins to get, and then he could have done this. He could have just walked around the house. Dear God, we just pray for you right now. We just ask that you make this law go out of effect. God, we just want you. He could have made it kind of nonchalant like he was praying but what's the author say he got down on his knees it was obvious what he was doing windows open and everything what did Daniel do he drew a line in the sand he says I'm not turning my back on my God my God has been faithful to me I'm not turning my back in this godly pagan culture I don't care what you do to me I'm not turning my back on my God and he begins to pray to God with the windows open listen Christian your stand should not be vague It should not be vague. Daniel was not an apologetic Christian. He made his stand boldly. There's a book written by a guy named Craig Rochelle. It's called The Christian Atheist. He says, believing, this is the subtitle, believing that God, uh, believing that God is real, but living as if he doesn't exist. I believe that's how many Christians are living today. They'll say with their mouth, God is real, but with their lives, they say he doesn't exist. And so we need some people. We need some Daniels, Azariah, Michelle's to stand up and say, I will not bow down. I don't care what this culture stands for. I don't care what this culture. And we need some parents to stand in the gap and teach your kids what is right and wrong. Do not be a 
a friend, but a parent. Because this world is after your kids. And they want them so badly. And so we need some people to stand up and say, I, I, I've been slacking on my convictions, but today I'm drawing a line in the sand. I'm not, con- I'm not compromising no more. I'm going to distance with God. I don't care what my friends say. I don't care what my, my boss says. I don't care what my, my, my culture says. I don't, I'm drawing a line in the sand, and I'm not compromising no more. And so on your paper, and if you didn't grab an outline, you can just write it down somewhere, type it into your phone. I don't really care. And on the bottom of your paper, on the back, I put a 10-day challenge. Because what did Daniel say? Daniel says, let me live this way for 10 days. You come back and check on me, and there's not a difference, and I'll do it your way. But after 10 days, there was a difference, wasn't there? And so the prince of the eunuchs agreed and says, okay, we'll continue feeding you the vegetables and the water you've been asking for. Here's what I want to say to everybody in this room. Some of you might be standing on the ledge, but you're just waiting for somebody to push you know you've got to get serious with God. You know you've been slacking your convictions. You know you ain't been taking your walk with God seriously. And it's been bothering you, but you need to see somebody give you a little push in that direction. I'm giving you that push today. So I'm going to challenge you for the next 10 days to write down a, 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 a conviction, something you will not compromise on for the next 10 days. What, it, what will it be? Maybe it's, I will not listen to any music that doesn't honor God. Maybe it's every night before my kids go to bed, I'm going to pray with them for the next 10 days because that's something I need to do and I haven't been doing it. Maybe it's, you know, I haven't really been reading my Bible like I should. So for the next 10 days, I'm going to read my Bible every single day. For the next 10 days, I've been very terrible about sharing my faith. So for the next 10 days, I'm going to share my faith every day. Maybe some things you need to stop doing. For the next 10 days, I'm not going to look at anything I shouldn't be looking at on the internet. For the next 10 days, I'm not going to take a single drop of alcohol. For the next 10 days, I'm going to tell my wife I love her every single day. What is it that God is putting on your heart to do for the next 10 days to build up your family, to build up your character, to establish your testimony, to fight against this culture, to draw a line in the sand and say, I've been going with the flow, I've been keeping the peace, but I'm not going no further. I'm stopping right here.